What? Why did you make me say? Why are you going to make me say some terrible French word, Gordon? <laughs> it's an English word as well. It's I a loan sp- word. We use it I a barely lot. speak Dutch. Stop trying to make me speak French. Say, it's, a, it's, a, it's a common word in English. It's Friday, March the 8th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darroch, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Daycare Dad, and with me today is my fellow Dutch News Contributor and Blue Ball Juggler, Molly Quell. Our third regular contributor, Paul Peters, is uh, out, well, we're not quite sure where, but we suspect he's destroying the environment with his Fefe Day pals. I bet you he is. Yeah. It seems like something he would do. Edward does, yeah. Well, we discovered this week, didn't we, that the Fefe Day voters are most likely to trash the environment yeah, yeah it's, it's been st- statistically yes proven. it's been scientifically proven now that yeah. paul is worse for the environment than everyone else well he votes every day and he drives a taxi it's so terrible he, and he, he's he, from he brabant a, so he's like contributing yeah, to like exactly. drug pollution he's a one-man right? co2 factory Ex- exactly basically. Yeah. <laughs> so uh how's the how's being a daycare dad going uh, Gordon? yeah this has kind of been landed on me because uh, i got an email last night saying that um uh, uh my youngest son's uh, class teacher um, had been taken sick and they couldn't uh, find a replacement. So, well, um, I hope she gets well soon, especially because he's off school today. So I've had to bring him down with me. So there's a child in the house uh, at the moment downstairs playing playing granny on the iPad. Which is a thing that never happens. We just, <laughs> as a rule, don't have children in this house. Yeah. Yeah, so we've had to separate our respective children because your child is not like dogs. And no. So the dog child has been locked upstairs and the yeah. human child is locked downstairs. Yeah, so the dog child, the, the dog child is in the recording studio and, um, yeah, as far as I know, well, last time I checked, uh, my son was downstairs uh, happily on the iPad. Yeah, hopefully he hasn't moved. No. No. Um, yeah, and uh, so, so what, what's been going on with the blue balls? So, so I was uh, in a... About blue balls. Oh, man, I was in a... Apparently, blue, is blue balls, like, not a thing in Dutch? Like, is that... Did Seemingly not. Apparently no. not. <laughs> so uh, I was in a long strategy communications meeting yesterday, and uh, the person who was presenting the information had used these, like, blue circles to indicate uh-huh. themes that we were talking about. And uh, someone had referred to them sort of jokingly as like the blau abolishes, mm-hmm. the blue balls. And uh, that sort of continued. And basically for the next three hours, in lieu of using the word themes, basically mm-hmm. people were using the phrase blau abolishes. Just chucking it around. Just, just chucking to, it around. Yeah. And it's all these Dutch people who like seem to have no concept that this is like <laughs> a, a sexual innuendo. Yes. So I was very confused. And now I want to know if uh, is blue balls like not a thing in Dutch. I haven't come across it, I have to say, but uh, we don't have our resident uh, yeah, we'll native to, with us, so we'll have, we'll, to ask we'll, Paul. we'll have to ask when he's back. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. Um, but speaking of Paul, uh, he has uh, at least contributed... Speak, yeah. Speaking of Paul, he has at least contributed an op-hef of the week. Yes, uh, he has given ever, us an op-hef. Uh, which this week is... Uh, well, uh, you, you talk us through it. The op-hef of the week is about dank leader Tunahun Kuzu. He was a guest on the morning TV show Goede Morning Nederland, where he clashed with the presenter Micah Timmerman. Kuzu said that people in the Netherlands are judged based on their ethnic and political background, giving them less job opportunities. As an example, Kuzu said that his invitation to be guest host and guest editor of the morning TV show was revoked. The current affairs program invites a different political leader every day in the weeks before the provincial elections. Timmerman defended the decision, saying it was made in light of Kuzu's earlier clashes with journalists and the press, and that it wouldn't be appropriate to make him a guest editor and give him a say in the content of the program, since the party does not apparently guarantee sufficiently the freedom of press. Right. And this stirred up quite a lot of op-hef. Uh, yes, so much op All over the place, well, especially on Twitter. Yeah, well, this is, that's, where the, that's where all that's the op-hef where, 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 happens. Op-hef to, yeah, it, it is a forum of op-hef. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of forums, I think one person who weighed into this discussion 
uh, quite forcibly oh, was, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, was, uh, was the Dutch News podcast official political, <laughs> favorite political <laughs> person. The mascot, Cherry Baudet. Cherry yeah. Baudet, which is a bit ironic considering uh, Cherry Baudet's uh, somewhat anti-press freedom comments yeah. in the past. And I, I think uh, this was picked up on, wasn't it? That yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Cherry Baudet has been, I think, a guest editor on this program yes. uh, as well, uh, whereas uh, Tuna Hankuzu was, uh, was turned down on the basis that he'd have too much influence on the program. But you think any politician it's going to have too much influence on the program. Too much influence on the program. It's just a bad idea altogether. Yeah. But Baudet, interesting, yeah, interesting as well, is the guy who has called for weather presenters to be sacked because they talk about well, climate, climate change. change. Yeah. Well, and also had this uh, extremely awkward conversation in which he said that the... Uh, was it was it about the NOS that he said, uh, you know, we should have, like, more yes. control over what the NOS, like, reports on, basically, because they're government-funded. And then yeah. people were like, but do you want to tell journalists, like, what to do? And yeah. then he, like, sort of got very uncomfortable and backtracked. Yeah, he realised he hadn't thought it through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or didn't realise he didn't, hadn't thought through the full implications of it. So if you're a white guy yeah. and you hate the press, mm-hmm. you can go on the show. Yes. If you're a brown guy and you hate the press, you then cannot you go on the show. No, then you're not. Uh, Thus proving Kuzu's point. Pretty yeah. much. Pretty yeah. much. You'll yeah. get a few opportunities to guest edit um, Breakfast TV. Yeah, that's true. Which is really a... Which really, is a pinnacle of achievement. It's really, a pinnacle in, of achievement. In, 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 in yeah, the, that's true. In Dutch political life. Yes. This week, the Willem Holeda judicial soap opera is approaching its conclusion. Ajax rocked the footballing world again, and the Dutch and French governments are back on speaking terms after the Air France KLM row. In our discussion, we'll look at why and how Dutch museums are trying to give back colonial artworks to their countries of origin. Prosecutors have asked a court in Amsterdam to give Willem Holeda a life sentence as a celebrity gangster's marathon trial draws to a close. The 60-year-old is alleged to have masterminded the murders of five associates, including his brother-in-law, Kof van Hout, during a career that began with the kidnap of beer magnate Freddy Heineken in the 1980s. Holleder has been on trial in the high-security Amsterdam courtroom known as The Bunker for over a year, and the verdict's not expected until July. All the victims were involved in drug dealing or other criminal enterprises with Holleder, and all of them, according to the prosecution, either owed him money or had cooperated with the police. Holleder's lawyers argue he should be acquitted on all charges. They say the case against him is built on testimony from unreliable witnesses. So, I mean, it seems like a good life lesson, but maybe don't lend all money to yeah. Willem Holleder. Just don't get involved with anything Willem Holleder's doing. Or tell all. on him to the police. Just, don't even buy a coffee, and certainly don't talk to the police about him. Yeah. yeah in fact, I don't. Even, maybe we shouldn't even talk about him on this podcast. I think probably we are, yeah, we're on sticky ground already. Yeah, we're inviting, yeah. we're inviting trouble. So who are these uh, key witnesses who they called uh, unreliable? Well, altogether there's been uh, 62 witnesses at the trial, but the main ones are, of course, uh, Willem Holleder's sisters, Astrid and Sonia. They went to the police in 2013 to testify against Willem because Astrid said she believed he was plotting to kill them, particularly Sonia, who's also the widow of Kof van Hout, who was one of the Heineken kidnappers, and she inherited his, his uh, ill-gotten fortune after he was shot dead in 2003. That's one of the killings that uh, Willem Holliday is accused of. Um, Astrid says she was one of the few people her brother trusted, and she began secretly taping their conversations. The problem is that even then, Holliday would use coded language so that rather than saying he was going to kill somebody, he'd say they're going to lie down. Um, so it's all very much you've got to kind of read between the lines and uh, the prosecution case is based on how you interpret particular forms of words but Astrid has written two books about her relationship with her brother both of which were runaway bestsellers but she's living in hiding and only goes out in disguise because she believes her brother will do everything he can to try and uh, have her bumped off seems like a 
makes for an interesting Christmas dinner, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. It's a bit like kind of vs to mole, I suppose. Which 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 person around the table is Astrid right. in disguise? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't find out until after she's gone. Yeah, till yeah. after she gets murdered by her brother. Yeah. So you can read. You wrote a whole like long form piece about this trial, right? Yeah, and this is nearly a year ago now. Yeah. While the trial was in its uh, well, not in its earliest stages, but yeah, after being going on for a couple of months. Uh, yeah, but so there's a long sort of explainer of uh, who William Holliday is and why he's so famous, yeah. which I always think is the intriguing thing. Yeah. How this guy who's basically had a career out of extortion, blackmail, kidnapping, uh, has become a kind of Dutch culture like pop culture icon. Right. I will link to that uh, thing in the, the liner notes. We will. In exciting news, I finally get to put my econ degree to good work. Whoa. I know. My parents will be so proud. <laughs> After years of growth over 2%, the Dutch economy will grow 1.5% this year and in 2020. That's according to the government's macroeconomic think tank, CPB. The downturn in growth is due to international uncertainties, such as Brexit. Everything China, is about Brexit. Everything yeah. is about Brexit. Yeah. Chinese economic developments and U.S. trade policy. Oh, Don't forget, well. we're also screwing up <laughs> yes. the world economy. Spending power will rise by an average of 1.6% this year and 1.3% in 2020, the CPB predicted. That's stimulated by government policy and higher wages. The new figure includes the higher energy prices and taxes, which have uh, boosted energy bills by over 300 euros a year. We noticed ours going up, mm-hmm. which I think we talked about yeah, last uh, week. Yeah, I've seen it as well. Yeah. Inflation will rise to 2.3% this year because of the increase in the value-added tax and energy prices, but the CBS says it will fall back to 1.4% in 2020. And that's quite a dramatic revision on the earlier forecasts, which are well above 2%, yes. right? And I think they said that the year just gone past, they, they, or they haven't got the final figures, it's look, it was around 2.5%, so it's a definite slowdown. Yeah, it's a definite slowdown. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's all kind of intriguing details in here. I saw Matthias Bellman uh, tweeted something yesterday that uh, one of the reasons that growth isn't going as fast as expected is that the government's got this kind of budget surplus and they haven't actually been able to spend all the money. Yeah. So. It's a real... It's you a real know, man, Dutch, Dutch politics, it's just problem, always it? like yeah. a, an Alice in Wonderland, sort of like, how did we get here, instead yeah. of it being not enough money. You know, on, one side money. The, on, the, on one side of the, the, the North Sea, we've got Brexit, and yeah. the country that is just absolutely just fucking itself. Yeah. Basically, on the other side of the country, it's got more money than it knows, knows what, how to, to, what to do with. Yeah. yeah. It's really weird. Um, but is there any other economic news? There is. <laughs> the Dutch housing market may be getting to cool down. Housing prices have actually fallen a fraction in places like Vassenaar, Amstelveen, and Rotterdam. That's according to the latest report from Price Monitor Calcasa and Homeowners Lobby VAH. The housing market always slows down in the fourth quarter, and you often have price drops in some areas, but this is a lot more than we usually see. That's according to Calcasa spokesperson uh, Rohir van der Heide. <laughs> Despite the slowdown in the final three months of the year, average house prices still rose by 9.3%. Uh, that's in t- referring to 2018 numbers. The rise was the highest, 13.9% in The Hague, followed by Rotterdam at 13.5%, and Flevoland province at 12.2%. Nevertheless, houses are still more affordable than they were when the market reached its previous high in 2008, and that's because of the extremely low interest rates. Kolkasa figures show that in 2008, home buyers would spend 27% of their net monthly income on housing, and it's compared to 16% now. Right, so we're a long way from crisis point yeah. just yet. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the low mortgage interest rate makes just a tremendous difference no, in how much does. you are paying. So yeah. as someone who's bought a house with, with an extremely low mortgage interest rate. Yeah, I guess. And you're on a fixed or a flexible? Yeah, no, we have a fixed. Yeah, we're like, just lock lock that in for 20 (laughs) years. It's never going any lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the the one danger is if the interest rates start going up, then some people are going to see that their mortgage 
dramatically increases. Rises. Yeah, yeah. I, you would have to have been crazy, I think, when we at least when we bought our house to go with a flexible rate because yeah. it's like, you know, maybe a half a percentage point lower than what we got. But like, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you just it's such a gamble, and we just have such a low rate locked in for twenty years. Yeah, that it was very smart. I think. It is a gamble. It's a, it's a one way gamble yeah. because the rates aren't going to go down. They're anymore. not going to go they down. Can't. Yeah. They physically cannot yeah. unless you get into negative um, yeah. uh, in, uh, interest rates, which nobody wants. Nobody wants. And I guess the other thing as well is that with the housing market is the point of the last peak an awful lot of people were on basically um uh, zero repayment mortgages right. they were interest only yeah and, and then you're not it's not really a mortgage anymore you're basically just uh, you know the bank owns your house right. and you're sort of paying you're just paying the interest yeah and that, that meant that people shored up this massive debt mountain yeah because no one was paying off their mortgage right. they now change the rules to say that yeah you can't do that anymore you can't do that and yeah. even if you you know and, and actually if you want to qualify for things like mortgage interest relief you have to be paying off a certain proportion of your, uh, yeah. of your mortgage yep, yep, so yep. i think that's made yeah it a lot less toxic yeah but a lot more boring i think is what our mortgage guy said but i think a, a lot more uh yeah. reasonable for the, the for that's the actually a good market. thing yeah as ever, as ever in dutch politics and economics boring is good boring is good yeah Gordon, did you seriously rewrite the sports script so that I have to have say a bunch of things so yeah. I can't just play on my phone for the next five minutes? Exactly. I sabotaged you. You're terrible. I know. Only one place to start this week's sports news. Patrick Roast winning the all-around skating title? Uh, no, although Roost did successfully defend his title in Calgary at the weekend, uh, finishing ahead of Norwegian Sverre Lunda Pedersen and his teammate Sven Kramer, so well done Patrick Roost. The European Indoor Athletic Championships in Glasgow? No, uh, again, although the Dutch team picked up five medals uh, at that event, including a gold for Nadine Fisser in 60 metre hurdles, so a very successful trip to Scotland. I know. It has to be the Belgian stopping a cycle race because the women were catching the men. No, we're doing that later on in our special Belgian news roundup. I'm very excited for the Belgian <laughs> news roundup. Indeed. Yeah, but the big sports news is, of course, Ajax's stunning victory against Real Madrid that got the whole world talking about Dutch football again. What is Ajax? Ajax are a football club from Amsterdam. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they just beat Real Madrid 4-1 in the Bernabeu, which is, 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 is a big thing what in is Real European Madrid? football. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else knows, Molly. <laughs> Everyone, please just email or tweet the podcast explaining to Molly uh, who Real Madrid and Ajax are. Yeah, if, some, if somebody could tweet at me explaining what football is, I would yeah. love that. But they, and they didn't just win, they trounced a team that hadn't lost a European Cup knockout tie since the semi-finals in 2015, and they'd won the last three tournaments. Hakim Zia and David Neres set the ball rolling with goals in the first 20 minutes and then in the second half came Dusan Tadic's fizzing strike which was only confirmed after a four minute consultation with a video referee and then a rocket of a free kick from Lasse Schoener to consign the Galacticos to oblivion. And what was uh, what's what stood out for you Gordon? Uh, well I think you, you have to start with Frankie de Jong because there's been a lot of talk about his big money transfer to Barcelona but he, he looked the part on Tuesday night he put Luka Modric who was the world's best player 12 months ago uh, in the shade uh, Dusan Tadic um, was unrecognisable as the kind of journeyman from Southampton. He twisted the Madrid defence inside and out and scored that all-important third goal. Um, Matthias de Ligt in defence was impenetrable and Neres had a moment in the first half where he just uh, left uh, uh, the, the Madrid defender Cavacil on his backside with a turn that was straight out of Johan Krauf. So, and it was just a team that was a joy to watch and completely unrecognisable from the team that had lost 1-0 to Heraklis a few weeks ago and they certainly um, uh, made a mockery of uh, all those people who said it was a waste of time postponing their weekend game against Pexvoller, hmm. which is what I said in the podcast last week. Okay, good yes. to know that you were... Uh, <laughs> that was completely wrong. That you yeah. were totally wrong. Okay, <laughs> I mean, I'm interested in sports if we're just going to discuss how wrong you are. <laughs> good. I may not know anything about sports, but I do know a lot about Twitter. Yeah. And so why was everybody talking about Sergio Ramos? 
Yes, Sergio Ramos, who's a captain of Real Madrid, and actually more people I think talked about him than any of the players that was on the, who were on the field. Yeah, and he wasn't on the field. <laughs> he wasn't on apparently. the field. Yeah, and he wasn't on the field by his own design, basically, mm. because he he was one booking away from being suspended um, by uh, under the rules of competition. So he basically decided when the Real Madrid were two two one up in Amsterdam and looking like. The second language is coming in formality. I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll get myself deliberately suspended. Uh, so he, he tackled a player in the last minute, got a yellow card, so they could sit out the second leg and then he'd be ready for the quarterfinal, which basically, because once you've um, served a suspension, you're back to zero. To zero. Again. Yeah, and he's free to just go out, go around fouling people in the next round. Okay. So that was his idea. Uh, the only problem is it went, um, it backfired in two ways. First of all, UEFA got wind of um, of his uh, devious plan and they doubled his suspension, so he's going to miss two games. And then, of course, the team got knocked out. Yeah. So he's not going to play in the quarterfinal at all. Yeah. And there was an awful lot of, you know, sort of calm as a bitch type tweets flying around. Fair enough. <laughs> Especially because during the game he was seen in one of the executive boxes making a documentary about himself in the stand. no are you yes. serious <laughs> oh my god so uh, a lot of people had fun at his this expense. is out of control yeah the dutch government will not help is fighter Yaho riedijk return to his home country riedijk who is 26, told the BBC and the Volkskrant in the last few months that he hoped he could be reunited with his British wife, Shamima Begum, who has been stripped of her citizenship by the UK government and their newborn baby. Riedijk is currently being held in a Kurdish detention centre while Begum and their son, Jara, were living in a refugee camp in northern Syria. A spokesperson for the Dutch Justice Minister, Ferdinand Krapahaus, which is my favourite politician yeah. name, Absolutely. said the government would not help Riedijk with his repatriation. Quote, the rules are the same for all Dutch travellers to Syria. If they want to return and they will not have any assistance from the Dutch side. Uh, and his wife, meanwhile, has, uh, is no longer a British citizen. Sort of. So Begum is a British-born woman who left the UK in February 2015. She was 15, by the way, to join mm. IS. Days after arriving in Syria, she married Riedijk. He had converted to Islam and arrived in Syria in October 2014. In February 2019, she was interviewed by The Times and then the BBC, um, and she said that she was pregnant and she hoped to return to the UK to raise her child, but that she did not regret her decision to join IS. UK Home Secretary Sajid Javid then announced that an order had been made with the intention of stripping Begum of her British citizenship. The UK government contends that she holds or is eligible for the citizenship of Bangladesh, but the government of Bangladesh has said that Begum does not hold Bangladeshi citizenship and will not be allowed to enter the country. UK law allows for people with dual nationality to be stripped of their British citizenship, but not if it renders them stateless. Yeah, so that's going to run and run. Yeah, that's going to go on for yeah. a while. There's already lots of lawyers involved. Indeed. And what is going to happen if Riedijk does get back to the Netherlands um, under his own steam? If he returns, Riedijk will have to serve a six-year prison sentence imposed by the district court in Rotterdam last year. He's one of a number of Dutch nationals who have been convicted in absentia of belonging to a terrorist organization after going to fight in Syria. This is part of the reason that Begum is also unlikely to be able to move to the Netherlands with her husband. Under the rules of the Immigration Service, both partners must be 21 years or older to be eligible for family unification. Begum is not. Mm -hmm. um, their child could be entitled to Dutch nationality if the parents can prove that they were married at the time of birth. However, that's unlikely because their marriage was conducted in the Islamic State, which is not recognized as a country, etc., yeah. etc. So there's, there's an awful lot of hurdles that she's got to jump over, it's, basically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the whole... Th I, I, we're not going to get into, a, like, an extensive discussion about whether or not we should be bringing these people back and those no. sorts of things, but this case just seems... I mean, it's just so complicated. It's incredibly thorny. Yeah. And I think more on the UK side than... Yeah, than for here. sure. Actually, with Jakob Riedijk, it's fairly straightforward. He's a Dutch citizen. He's entitled to live here, but he's also got to serve his sentence. The Netherlands and France have kissed and made up following their tête-à-tête -tête over the Dutch government's impulse buy of a 14% shareholding in Air France KLM. 
Finance Minister Vopka Hoekstra, which is probably my favourite Dutch politician name. Is it? It's, nothing is better than Ferdinand Krapperhaus. <laughs> he sounds like a Bond villain, doesn't it's he? True. Ferdinand Krapperhaus. Hoekstra. Yeah. And his counterpart, yeah, Finance Minister Vopka Hoekstra and his counterpart Bruno Le Maire issued a joint statement in which they pledged to work together to make the joint flag carrier the best airline in the world. Hoekstra acknowledged that the Netherlands' secret plan to buy up a stake in the parent company was, quote, unorthodox. But he argued it was the best way of securing Dutch interests to the chagrin of Le Maire, who said he hadn't been formed in advance and was clearly rankled at being presented with a fait accompli. So did the attempted rapprochement succeed? Well, there was clearly friction between the two cabinets immediately after the uh, announcement last week, and a lot of the French press described the move as incroyable. But both countries quickly realised there was little point in letting it escalate into a full-blown row. Ultimately, the Dutch government has what it wants, which is a greater say in decisions made by senior management in Paris, where the company is based. And they got a guarantee that Peter Elbers, who's the boss of KLM will keep his job, even though French ministers have been campaigning for months to unseat him. You and Paul discussed this story in more depth last week, so if anybody wants to know more of the background to the whole affair, then uh, they should listen back to that. News from Belgium now, Gordon. First, Dutch MPs have called for all flights between Amsterdam and Brussels to be scrapped, saying that the journey between the two capitals can easily be done by train. It can easily be done by train when the trains are not delayed. Oh, wait, but it, but it gets more complicated. <laughs> the train is not only quicker than flying, but better for the environment, MPs said during a debate on Tuesday. The proposal, put forward by the left-wing Green Party Links, was backed by the De Sessistig and Christian Uni, both members of the current coalition government. Transport Minister Cora van Nieuwenhuizen not anybody's favorite uh, no. MP name, said in reaction that the airlines were free to decide for themselves where to fly. However, she said that she is in talks with KLM, NS, and Schiphol to encourage greater use of the trains on short distance. Yeah. You know what they should really do? They should have the Dutch and Belgian railways get together to uh, build a high-speed line between two countries. That would work really well, I think. Especially if they've got an Italian company to build, to the, build, the, to trains. build the trains. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's I can't see that going wrong at all. No. no, there's no way they waste loads of money and build a terrible no. piece of uh, badly built kit. Yeah. No. No. Mm. Would never happen. No. Uh, are there many flights between Amsterdam and Brussels? So apparently KLM operates five flights a day between the two cities, which take about 45 minutes in the air. But most people who use these flights are in transit, mm. so it seems like it would be really a hassle to ask them to switch to a train to get back on a plane in Brussels. Uh, but would it be because you've got to get to the airport somehow, and a lot of people do go to the airport by train, so it's just a question of going to Brussels airport yeah, rather but, than Schiphol but, airport, and if there was a direct But service. most of the flights are not, it's not people who are leaving from Amsterdam ah. to go to Brussels, it's you're coming from somewhere else, right. and then you have an intervening flight between yeah. in there. Um, so that seems like it would be a lot to like, because then you'd have to leave the and airport and take airport, your luggage and like recheck yeah. in and all that kinds of stuff, which, yeah. you know, especially I think if you're dealing with international travelers, there's a lot to ask for them to negotiate these like train systems. No, and that's stuff. true. And yeah, the, the Dutch government and the Dutch media were speaking as if this was a problem with people kind of uh, either just hopping from Amsterdam to Brussels, which yeah. nobody does, or as you say, people who start in Amsterdam and then go on somewhere else. So yeah. not people who are in, uh, on, a long, on a longer schedule. Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, just sort of as an aside, I don't understand why you would fly to Brussels anyway, because being on the train is so much easier than yeah. flying, right? You don't it have to is. deal with the, like, yeah. security and taking your shoes off and liquids and all of this, getting there two hours beforehand. You just sort of, like, walk right onto the train car, you take your bag with you, yeah. you can sit there and use the internet. And, yeah, yeah, you can sit there. And usually you sit there for a long time because at some point in the journey the train gets stuck somewhere around Rosendale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's true. So. In other news from Belgium, <clears throat> the Belgian government inspection body, FODE, has banned supermarket Albert Hein from offering the three products for the price of one. Mm. Belgian rules forbid products from being sold at a loss. Belgian Consumer Affairs Minister Chris Peters, who ordered an investigation into the supermarket's offer, said, quote, normal competition becomes impossible if supermarkets sell at a loss, allowing big players to crush smaller players. 
we cannot allow that. No, can't possibly have supermarkets selling things cheaply. No, absolutely not. And what about the roads? The roads in Belgium? Yeah. Still terrible. They are are terrible if you're a driver, but if you're a cyclist, uh, there's also another problem, especially if you're a female cyclist, because uh, we had uh, this situation last week where the Belgians actually stopped a women's cycling race because the women were catching up with the men. So the women's half of a major cycling race in Belgium was stopped after Swiss cyclist Nicole Hanselman caught up to the men's race. There was supposed to be a 10-minute gap between the start... Well, there was a 10-minute gap between the start of the men's race and the women's race in the annual Omloophet Newsblad around the Flemish Ardennes. Hansel's Mon and the rest of the peloton was stopped on the side of the road as event organizers, quote, neutralized <laughs> the women's race in order to restore the gap between the two groups. Yeah. Uh, after being allowed to resume, Hansel Mon was given a head start on the peloton, but was quickly reeled in. Eventually, she finished in 74th place. And there's videos on the internet of a, of a man stepping out into the road and sort of just stopping these uh, these women cyclists because they're going too fast, saying, you can't have this, you, you, you're going to be catching up the men soon. What I mean was there argument like a safety and security concern that there was going to be like too much cyclists together or did it just blow everybody's mind that the women were better? It might, I think it might be a bit of both. They just ha- I think they just hadn't ex- uh, counted on that happening. They yeah. thought if they gave the men a ten minute head start because in cycle racing sometimes the the, the pack just goes out at a very slow pace. Yeah. In one race and in the other race the women just obviously decided started a lot faster. she decided to break away early and uh, she started catching up with the men. Yeah. So they had to sort of hold her back. Um, and wow. then of course when she started again she sort of lost her momentum yeah. and then she, she she faded. I would be real pissed. If I was her. I would be too, really, yes. We'll be discussing what Dutch museums are doing to repatriate colonial art after this word from our sponsors. Here in Holland is the podcast in English about life with the Dutch. Stories to make you laugh, cry, pull your hair out or jump for joy. Every two weeks, available in your favourite podcast app, on Spotify or at hereinholland.com. The Dutch National Museum of World Cultures said this week it will return works of art taken from former colonies to their countries of origin. Instead of waiting for the artworks to be reclaimed, the museum plans to scour its collection for stolen items and identify the rightful owner. It won't be an easy task, as the museum, which is a fusion of the Tropen Museum in Amsterdam, Museum Volkunkunde in Leiden and the Afrika Museum in Bachendal, has about 375,000 artefacts in its collection and around half of it is tied up with the Dutch colonial past. Quote, it is hard to say which objects have actually been stolen, said director Stijn Schoendevoort. So should museums be doing more to restore cultural artefacts to former colonies, and how easy is it to do it in practice? So Gordon, what are we talking about in this particular case? Well, as I said, there are thousands and thousands of objects in all kinds of museums, but yeah. perhaps the best known uh, as an example is 139 items that form part of the Benin Bronzes, which were taken during a punitive expedition by the British, it's usually the British responsible it's always here, the British. to the Kingdom of Benin in 1897. In total, the collection contains more than a thousand bronze, brass, ceramic and wooden sculptures and smaller pieces, which were crafted between the 13th and 18th centuries by the Edo people, and they decorated the Royal Palace of Benin, which is in modern-day Nigeria. 200 of them are in the British Museum in London. The rest were sold to other museums around Europe and Nigeria has been trying to get them back ever since it declared independence in Britain in 1960 and only about 50 of 2,500 Benin sculptures are still in Nigeria. There's also the Singasari statues which Indonesia has been asking the Netherlands to return since 1975. Okay. Are the statues large? Are these like big things or are they small the things? The Benin things, I think yeah. on the whole they're fairly small things. Small so things. They, they tended to be, when they're in the palace, they, was, they were nailed to the wall. But they were gifts to the king. Interesting. Yeah. So how does the Dutch National Museum plan to return these artworks? What is their like process going to be here? They're working on that and it is a very tricky situation. Um, the, the real problem, of course, is establishing exactly where these things come from. Uh, there's not much of a paper trail around colonial art, so the museum's got a difficult job on its hands just working out how these 
these items got to the Netherlands, um, who the middlemen were who bought and sold them, or exactly how they were appropriated. Uh, the Benin bronzes uh, are actually a relatively straightforward case in that regard, because there's lots of documentation about how the British took them. Yeah. Um, basically, they went in on, on a sort of a revenge mission after uh, a load of missionaries are killed and just swiped them. But in other cases, museums don't even know which country the items have come from sometimes. So the Museum of World Cultures said the bulk of its collection comes from Indonesia, and the National Museum in Jakarta already has an extensive collection, so it might not ask them back anyway. But Stanis Kondervoort says the thing here is to, that he wants to establish a national policy, a sort of set of guidelines for the return of cultural objects, which is similar to the one that's been set up to restore artwork stolen from Jewish collectors by the Nazis, which is a whole other can uh, of worms. That's a whole it's, other can of worms, yeah. yeah. But that's also sort of come up this week, of course, in the wake of this decision. Right. Yeah. So is this just a case of, like, finding the owner and, like, giving this thing back? Like... How does it work? Well, even then it's tricky because uh, in legal terms, the Dutch state is the owner of the items. Right. The, the culture minister has the last word. So could, in theory, say we want to retain these objects because they're important to the cultural history heritage um, or the museum collections of the Netherlands. And, that, and it gets complicated because Dutch law requires the interest of the state to be taken into account as well as the interest of the claimants. And this policy has been criticised a lot in the context of the restitution of art stolen by the Nazis. It conflicts with the Washington principles, which were set up to govern the return of um, stolen Nazis art and it could potentially be a sticking point as well for colonial art but Skondervoort said in an interview that although most claims had legally expired there was nevertheless a moral argument for restitution and that was what he wanted to pursue. And is there like any precedent for this? I mean what have other like museums and countries done to return stolen artwork? Yeah, how's, it should... going? how's it going in your home country? <laughs> Let's talk about that. that. Yeah, let's talk about the British Museum show. Yes. There has been recent years uh, quite a culture shift towards recognising the claims of the indigenous owners and trying to find ways to get pieces back and also museums are being set up in Africa so there's a Benin National Museum now in Nigeria that wants to take these uh, items back and put them on display in the place where they came from and the the British Museum of course has about 73,000 items of colonial art from sub-Saharan Africa in its collection and it it has been quite reluctant to part with any of them and uh, repatriate them and some of the arguments that are made for not returning colonial art is that museums in the West were better equipped to look after precious works of art, that they had the expertise and they were safe and of course if you think of countries like the Egyptian Revolution or um, the uh, rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan, they often were, were engaged in cult- acts of cultural vandalism, like yeah. the, t- the Taliban blowing up uh, you know, monumental statues. Oh, I'm so I'm still I'm still emotionally upset about that. Yeah, but the, the counter argument, certainly in the case of Africa, is that they're never going to develop that curatorial expertise and actually have the stuff. They're right. not going to you know, attract the caliber of curators or train them up right. if they don't have the artifacts don't have to the look art. after in the yeah. first place. So it, it, it it's kind of an, an educational process. The Rijks Museum, uh, since we're talking about uh, other Dutch museums, said in 2017 it was investigating 10 items in its colonial collection that suspected have been obtained illicitly. They include the Banjimasin diamond, which belonged to the Sultan of Banjimasin in southern Borneo until Dutch troops seized it in 1859. So that seems a fairly clear-cut case again. Yeah. The French have said um, that uh, they want to return works that were taken from Benin during the colonial era as well. Um, Emmanuel Macron, uh, he commissioned a study last year about what to do with colonial art. And on the back of that, he announced that 26 items that are held in the Quai Brony Museum in Paris would be repatriated. He's called colonisation a quote, crime against humanity and said museums play a key part in making amends. And the report that he commissioned said that all objects removed without consent from Africa and sent to France should be permanently returned if the countries of origin asked for them. So that's quite a sea change. Yeah, and certainly that's, a- that's stirred up a lot of debate, I think, among museum curators and uh, about how far you should go and, and what the consequences are of returning items that are in the collections yeah. of uh, European museums. But not everybody is uh, as pro-return as Macron is, right? 
No, there's uh, been a very long-running debate about uh, a lot of artefacts uh, that have ended up in Western museums. The classic case, of course, is the Parthenon marbles, also known as the Elgin marbles, which are in the British Museum. Shocker. Uh, Greece has been agitating for them to be returned ever since it became a democratic state on the basis that Lord Elgin took them after doing a deal with the Ottoman Empire while it was occupying Greece, and therefore the seizure was illegitimate. But the curator of the British Museum, Hartwig Fischer, he stirred up the controversy again in January when he argued in a Greek newspaper that taking the marbles was a, quote, creative act because it allowed them to be displayed in a, in, in a new context. This is such a bad argument. There's <laughs> all the arguments you could pick. Yeah. Needs to say, it didn't go down too well with the Greeks. I can't uh, imagine when, when that. When he said this in a Greek newspaper. There's also been the argument that the artifacts increased European understanding of other cultures, particularly African culture. And oh yeah, because we're doing so well with that as Europeans. Yeah, but oh, it, challenged, it challenged the perception of African cultures as being primitive and backward because, for example, the Benin bronzes were evidence that African peoples had knowledge of things like metallurgy for far longer than, than, than we'd assumed. The objects taken by the French influence the works of artists like Picasso and the Elgin marbles inspired a poem by Keats called Ode to a Grecian Anne so therefore they promoted cultural cross-pollination which is a good thing but yeah but do you need to do it by just simply appropriating items and uh, shipping them off back to your I, home country I mean if you're British you think yes well you, yeah. in the 19th century you just did that without question right exactly yeah. Yeah. you saw it you took it and finally artworks in the pre-modern era of course were often made using practices that we were horrified by now they're often made by slaves or they were plundered by Roman Greece from other cultures that, that they had enslaved so how far back do you go you know art historian Tiffany Jenkins argued in The Guardian uh, in, in the autumn there's a danger of turning the past into quote a morality play and museums should just concentrate on presenting artifacts of history and not getting mixed up in arguments about the rights and wrongs. Yeah. So what do we think? Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a number of examples here, right? Like the Benin statues seem very clear cut to me, right? Mm. Like this was an act of retribution. There was clearly no way that these objects were like legally purchased or sold to the British like military. Nigeria wants them back. They appear to have like the ability to like maintain these artifacts you know, that that kind of stuff seems like fairly clear cut. I mean, also like maybe the Grecian marbles. Some of the other things, man, I think it's really hard. Like, I think that this point that Tiffany Jenkins made in The Guardian is very valid, which is, is that like exactly how far back are we going to mm. try to like litigate this? You know, not everything was stolen. There was a lot of stuff that was like purchased that I suspect at the time we feel has historical value, like carvings and things like this that, mm. that were maybe made were not considered to be like incredibly valuable, but now have like a lot more value value because of the fact that they're like from ancient sort of history. I am slightly sympathetic to the argument as someone who has spent a lot of time in places where they have museums that are not nearly as well maintained as the British Museum mm -hmm. is that like you worry about whether or not these objects can be properly taken care of in places where they don't have the capacity to you know the money and the financing because they are not a country that has like a ton of wealth. Yeah. I mean I think what the Dutch National Museum is doing is, is like a good thing and yeah. that like all museums should sort of like investigate these things and mm. if they have objects in their collections that were like clearly taken under inappropriate circumstances bad circumstances whatever violent circumstances and like there is a way to return them but like I mean how do you even like figure this out like I mean some of these countries that they were taken from are no longer countries or they were like regions so like who do you return it to I mean yeah. like this question about these statues in Nigeria I mean if this was like a marginalized group in Nigeria as opposed to like a fairly prominent group in Nigeria would you still want to return these like statues to the Nigerian like government mm. because that seems like it smacks of its own like form 
form of oppression in a way. Yeah, but like, on the other hand, I mean, I think, I think, I think what the I think what the Dutch Museum is doing is is a good thing mm. because it's actually a proactive thing. Yeah, I agree with that. And they're actually making the efforts to investigate where these things come from rather than just appropriating items from other yeah. people's culture and saying this belongs to us now. I mean, it's more about the question of ownership rather yeah. than the question of, um, of, of of where you put it on display. You yeah, have that that's as a separate true. argument. And there are all kinds of ways now. I mean, one of the arguments for the Elgin Marbles was that say you know uh, John Keats who wrote the poem Ode to a Grecian Anne was inspired by the Grecian marbles. He couldn't have travelled to to see them if he was in, in, in Athens and therefore that was a great you know cultural flourishing well that's fine in Keats's day that was true these days most people can afford to go to Greece and yeah. on the other hand on the other way these days it's much easier to transport objects and put them on loan yeah that's you know, true and borrow them and put them on yeah. in, in travelling exhibitions that wasn't possible again yeah. back in the day so you don't necessarily have to have these things in your permanent collection yeah. in order to put them on show because definitely cultural cross-pollination and being able to go to a museum in London and see objects from sub-Saharan Africa and see how much more advanced these cultures were than we tend to assume is definitely a good positive yeah. thing but we don't need to claim ownership of these yeah. items in order to do that yeah i mean maybe the marbles are more complicated because there's few of them but these like benin statues i mean there's like 2500 like you would think that like if everyone was arguing sort of like in good faith that you could come up with some sort of solution wherein yeah. you know the national museum in nigeria could own them all and like would agree to put them on permanent loan to the places where they have them now or like some mm-hmm. amount of them right i mean like there's so many of them you feel like with some things it's like well that's a single painting right and then it gets i think even more complicated because it's like if you can't trace back the ownership of this single painting like how do you figure that out but with some of these other things especially when it's in a collection it seems to be like there is room and space for like compromise where everybody should be able to be happy yeah Yeah. i think there's also a kind of ethnocentric uh, argument going on here you're looking at from the perspective of if all these um, artifacts return to africa then you won't be able to see them anymore in london or amsterdam but on the other way why should a kid in africa have to go to europe to see his heritage i totally agree with that point that point i i think i completely agree with i think my question is sort of a lot of these artifacts have value to human history and that like are we gonna send them to places where they may end up like the buddhist statues right in the taliban right i mean you couldn't have moved those because they were huge but like if you could have moved them i think almost everybody would have agreed that like maybe they would be better off sitting in the british museum than blown up to smithereens by the taliban so like how do you balance these sorts of things right this is how i always feel about zoos i mean i don't go to zoos generally because i like disagree with their premise and their existence but mm. like you see zoos in like developing countries and then you see what happens you know now with like the Syrian civil war and these kinds of things and you're like you know maybe it would be better off if we didn't mm. have zoo animals that are now like starving to death because of civil uprising yeah. in these places and so you worry about that like kind of stuff I don't know maybe that's like too much of like a colonialist mindset perhaps so yeah but again you said, I suppose if we're gonna go slightly against my own argument here so some of these objects uh, acquire value by virtue of the fact that uh, you know they're, they're held in high regard right. by the colonial powers until yeah. like, for example the Rosetta Stone right. was, was used was on a was found on a building site it was just literally being used as a brick basically yeah. and yet it was this incredibly valuable artifact that unlocked the language of the ancient Egyptians yeah. So you can yeah, say that, but on the other hand, it still goes back, I think, to you can accept that there's been a certain cultural kind of cultural fertilization here. But if you can actually find an item in your museum, you know it's been taken inappropriately. You know who it belongs to. Those people still, I think, fundamentally have the moral right yeah. to claim ownership of these things. And mm-hmm. then if you want to keep it in your museum, then you have a dialogue with yeah. the people who actually who it belongs to and, say, and get their permission for it rather than just keep on banging on the drum and yeah. saying we're going to claim ownership of it because we think we're you know we're a superior culture who looks after it you can't claim to be a superior culture and at the same time discover that you're you know one of your aristocrats went into a temple in greece with a spade mm-hmm. and dug up the elgin marbles you know right basically vandalized yeah the no it's too. you you make it you make a very very, <laughs> very, very those two things aren't, those are not compatible yeah um do we know maybe how like 
some of the countries who would be on the receiving end of some of these artifacts feel about it. Well, we know that Nigeria has wanted the Benin bronzes back for a long, long time. Yeah. And similarly, Indonesia has yeah. uh, laid claim to various uh, items that yeah. are in Dutch museums. I think certainly we should acknowledge that this is partly to do with the, the fact that tourism is a very big industry these days. Yeah. And both the countries that hold these artifacts and the ones that are claiming it both want the income from the visitors to go, yeah. to go looking at them. So we shouldn't overlook that. There was a nice quote I saw from Prince Kuma Ndumbi of the Douala people in Cameroon uh, in New York Times who said uh, in response to the report by the French government, who was commissioned by the French government, said this is not just about the return of African art. When someone's stolen your soul, it's very difficult to survive as a people. Yeah. Which I, I think goes very neatly to the heart of, you know, what, what the significance of these objects. They're not just yeah. pieces of... Yeah, it's pieces. true. They, they, they actually feed into your understanding yeah. of your cultural history. I mean, and I guess, you know, if, you would, if what the real genuine concern is, and I mean, I understand that, like, a lot of this concern is wrapped up in racism and stuff that, that makes it very complicated to sort of deal with these issues. But if your real genuine concern, I guess, is you want to ensure that these artifacts are kept, you know, in condition so that they can be continued to enjoy for future generations, mm. then like, you know, you would think that like the British Museum could arrange for six months of the year for there to be a pop-up British yeah. Museum in Nigeria where they could be maintained well. under those like sort of circumstances, right? You know, you could come up with some, you know, which is free to Nigerian people to be able to go to, right? Yeah. And like these sorts of things seem like there are things that we could like work out out in such ways that would make it like feasible for possible or they could do a partnership with yeah. a, with Nigeria Museum so if they feel that they need the support of the best museum creators in the world yeah. why can't they travel to Nigeria yeah. why can't they have a British the, museum yeah, exactly. oh you know like and the I, same I, I way that like there's a Hermitage Museum in Amsterdam yeah. yeah you make you make valid points Gordon you make valid points the other argument I've seen a lot is it slightly reflects in Tiffany Jenkins's article which is well worth reading and we'll link to it is that we're trying to judge the, the acts of the past by the standards of today but yeah. that obviously that's the fact that even at the time there was a lot of people who, who were unhappy with the way things are going on. I mean, Lord Byron wrote about the Elgin Marbles in his poem Child Harold's Pilgrimage, where he wrote, Dull is the eye that will not weep to see thy walls defaced, thy mouldering shrines removed by British hands. Yeah. So, you know, even back then, a lot of people saw this as an act of straight-up cultural vandalism. Yeah. You know, so even in the, by the standards of the day, there was a lot of questions being raised. Right. It's a, it's a valid point and a complicated issue, so yeah. well, I guess we will see what happens in the future. But it's going to be a very, very long drawn-out process. Yeah. And of course, this has also raised, again, the whole spectre of Nazi stolen arts and yeah. how you restore paintings uh, that were stolen from Jewish owners which yeah. is another whole kind of worms yeah yeah and a can of worms it seems like it should be easier to deal with in some ways because yeah. it's much more recent history so it's like yes. a little easier to figure out you know I imagine that like they said I mean some of the objects in these collections it's sort of like I mean, we know sort of vaguely from what region they came from but how do yeah. you even know who to return it to right yeah but with Nazi art you would think that we would know who to return it to but that's like also complicated because you know it happened long enough ago that people had children and those children had children yeah. and now you have like a lot of air options and it's like hard to figure out like where you return these things back to. I guess that's, that's complicated because a lot of it um, is being returned to private buyers yeah. and then there's something you get family disputes involved as well. Right. But nonetheless, I think so. I think it establishes a good, but that sets a good precedent nevertheless yeah. for the fact that you still have to do the work to, to establish, to, to establish the, the fact that one, it's yeah, stolen it's and true. two, who is the rightful owner. And at that point, you can then have the discussion about do you return it or do they take it back yeah. or do you do some kind of other, make some kind of other arrangement. Yeah, no, it's, that's But a just point. to say bluntly, you know, we're not giving it back, it's ours yeah. now. I think we've got to the point where you can all accept that's not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think another thing that becomes complicated with the Nazi art issue is, is that a lot of them go into private hands and private collections and then they're not available for public consumption. Yes. And so, yeah. like, I think there is a question about whether or not it's better to have art on public display where yeah. people can see it as opposed to, like, in a private home where nobody's yeah. ever going to see it again. But again, you can create incentives for that. You yeah. Know, you can create no, like, you tax breaks yeah. or something for people to put art on the show. You yeah. Know, or, like, some sort of agreement whereby, you know, it can hang in your living room above your mantelpiece for six months of the year. I mean, six months of the year, it's on loan to the Reich 
Paris Museum or something. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's ways to make it happen. You're right. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please do subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or anywhere else and leave us a rating. My thanks to Molly Quell, not to Pell Peters. No, screw that guy. Again, he's out burning up the environment. Yeah. Uh, I'm Gordon Derrick, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.